Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. Most or many of you will have heard of an extremely handy book in our business environment called Who Owns Whom? It's the most fantastic and quick way to find out how wealth in South Africa spreads between the companies on and off the JSE and who's got it and who really owns what. Who Owns Who was founded back in 1980 by a quite extraordinary man called Robin McGregor. I never met him, but by the time I came back to South Africa to edit magazines and newspapers, McGregor's was a sort of Bible. Anyway, on August 11th, 2008, Robin McGregor, then 79, was murdered in his new home in Tilbach in the Western Cape. It was brutal. He'd been stabbed nearly 30 times. I clearly remember wanting to curl up under the table when I heard the news. Something much worse, of course, uh, was happening to his family. And one of them is, like me, a South African journalist who had had a pretty decent job on a top newspaper in London and then decided to come home. I feel I've known Liz McGregor for years. I knew about her and may even have read her when she was a senior editor on The Guardian in London. So Liz, um, it's good to talk to you. You seem well and uh, listening to you briefly before we started this discussion, tranquil and in control. But your book, Unforgiven, published by Jonathan Ball, is out next week. And it tells of an absolutely torturous time in your life, starting not only with your dad's death, but then sort of extended by you because you needed what people now like to call closure, but it was more like a sort of fiery passion to know exactly what had happened to him and why. And it's now almost 12 years since his murder, and I wanted to ask you straight off, does the publication of Unforgiven next week draw a final line in the sand? Are you, are you finally done? Um. Hi, Peter. Thank you for that wonderful introduction Um, and the tribute to my dad. Um, Yeah, I did find it actually cathartic. Um, You know, I think probably as a journalist, understanding something helps one, just having the knowledge and having the facts about, instead of it just being this sort of terrifying thing out there that could swoop again any moment. Um, Yeah, and I sort of felt I sort of paid some sort of homage to my dad and you know, in finding out as much as what happened to him as I possibly could and the context of it. When did you know it was going to be a book? Um, You know, fairly early on because, um, I mean, as a journalist, I always kept a a journal because I've always felt that writing helped me sort of understand myself and my motivations and, yeah, move me on. So I knew that I would record everything and I would write down my thoughts and I would record everything that was happening to me and all the encounters I had. So, um, yeah, the, the idea of a book sort of emerged from that. We'll get back into the contents of the book in, in, in a minute. I'm sort of curious about, about how you stop or, or how you decide what to leave out. You know, for instance, you, you, it's, a sort of, it's a sort of memoir as well, isn't it? But it's, a kind of, it's vague where you want it to be vague and more precise where you want it to be precise. For instance, you don't name, and I wanted to know, um, as a reader, the name of the first newspaper you worked on in South Africa. And uh, you never sort of thought that was interesting enough. So we know you worked on The Guardian. Um, I just wondered whether, when you know it's enough. Well, that's a very hard question because I actually wrote reams more than appeared in the book. I mean, awful lot was chopped out. Um, just because I felt I wanted to make it sort of as crisp and as driven and as at as powerful as possible. So there were a lot, there were a lot of, of little alleys that I turned down on the way. 
and then decided to top off. Um, so, yeah. And I wrote and rewrote it about 25 million times. And, you know, every time I sort of, you know, chopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you and I both are both subs by um, uh, profession or by trade. Um, although you're a better writer than I am, so maybe that's what you really are. No nonsense. Um, <laughs> and lastly, before we start talking about the book, do you regret coming back to South Africa? I mean, you were you were at the Guardian. You were deputy of the deputy of the editorial pages, the strongest pages in the paper, um, the most liberal, you know, voice in Britain. Um, you would have been the editor of those pages at some stage. You would have been a contender, you know, as deputy editor and assistant editor. Do you regret coming home? Um. No, I don't. Um, you know, it was a kind of as strong, a, it was, a, it was a quite a strong compulsion. I mean, the whole time I was in London, which was about 17 years, um, I felt very divided. I mean, I, I also realised, I mean, it was a difficult decision to come back because I gave up so much in terms of, you know, a, a life and a, which I'd worked very hard to create in a sort of rich and stable country and a very, very good job on a highly, you know, prestigious organisation, which I was very happy, you know, which I, which I love doing. Um, but I do find that, um, you know, my heart and soul are in this country and I feel that living anywhere else is a more superficial life. Um, I find the kind of the wounds of this country are, you know, I, I, they, they, they resonate with me. Um, and I partly feel that having been part of, you know, the predator class from colonial era back on forward, um, I have some responsibility to make it right. I can't just yeah. say bye-bye, I'm off to greener pastures. So there's this day on uh, in August 2008 where you scatter your mum's ashes, right? And the whole family's there, and you're a big family, and a successful family. I mean, you're, you, your family is a thing in South Africa, whether one likes it or not. And you go off after the ashes have been scattered, your mum has passed away, you... Um, you go and have lunch at Hrud uh, Constantia. Uh, you watch the Springboks play Argentina. And at some stage or other, your dad says he's ready to go back home. And that's the last time you see him. Just fill in what happened. Well, yeah, it was, we, we just closed that journey with my mom, which had been a long and painful one. She died of Alzheimer's and my dad looked after her. Um, but of course, we were all involved. You know, it's a very, very painful business. A member with Alzheimer's, a member of the family yeah. with Alzheimer's. Um, and he just moved to Tolbach where he was hoping to settle into a new life. So it was a profoundly, profoundly shocking event. Um, so my brother Guy called me at eight in the morning and said, Liz's dad's been murdered. And I just thought he had to be joking. You know, it was just so impossible to believe. Mm. Um, mm. And then we all went out to Torbach and yeah, I met the rest of my family there. And <clears throat> the car, the, the house was all we weren't allowed in. The police were police were inside the detectives, and we sort of sat, sat outside in the sun for half the morning. And then we went and had coffee somewhere. Um, but it's, I think that the worst thing about murder is the profound shock of it. Um, and what I'm slightly haunted by is that every single day. There are 75 murders on average in South Africa. That means 75 families every single day are going through the same sort of trauma that we went through. Mm -hmm. Fear and anger and grief and bewilderment. And yeah. 
So every single day, you know, there's that, that sort of trauma is being compounded. Um, and in my experience, in my journey, not much is being done to kind of help those families. Uh, what, what surprises me a little bit at the beginning of the book is how quickly everybody's arrested um, uh, and how well the sort of communication seems to be between Belleville and, um, and, uh, and Tilbach. Um, a car spotted, you know, f- quite far away. Somebody's, anyway, I mean, witnesses are found and, um, and uh, an accused is, is arrested. You know, whether he's the right accused or whether he's the only person who should be accused, that's partly what the book is about. Um, um, did you at any stage feel comforted by any of that stuff, that things were happening, that you were going to get some sort of justice quickly? Yes, very much so. I mean, we felt, you know, well looked after. Um, you know, as it was the person who first noticed a problem was a constable who did rounds around my father's house, and he knew that my dad was not... Um, yeah. was the late sleeper, which he's always been. So the lights were still burning. So that made him suspicious. Um, but the reason why um, Cecil Thomas, the guy convicted of the murder, was caught was because he was another very alert constable. He, Cecil Thomas yeah. drove in my dad's car to Belleville South, to a friend's house. And um, an alert constable doing um, um, a, just a sort of drive-by <clears throat> saw this fancy car in an area where um, it was quite poor and you didn't expect to see a fancy car there and he assumed some sort of drug dealing and they went in and they found Tessel Thomas arrested him when he yeah. couldn't you know count for why he had this car and then they found my dad's um, business car business cards in the car so they were able to to go back right. to Torbach and get this, the police there yeah. to go and check my dad's house yeah. and of course there they found the body but and they was referred straight to yeah. the um, specialized yes. crimes unit because my father was high profile. Yes. So I suspect that yeah. also helped, you know, the, the, to get a result. And then, and then there's uh, lots of things happen. Then there's a court case, right? And and the delays and the de- but eventually it starts, and you go and you listen and you see this guy Cecil Thomas um, uh, for the first time, I presume, come into the dock. Um, and uh, talk, tell, tell us about the case and, and what was frustrating about it for you, because it's important in the context later on of the book. Okay, the, the trial, we were, you know, we were lucky that we had a trial. I know many families don't get a trial. The, the murder is not brought to account. Um, but it was actually profoundly traumatic, I have to say, because um, first of all, you get all the forensic detail of exactly what happened to my father and the details of the post-mortems. And also because we never knew what to expect. There were all these surprises popping up all the time. So because he, um, he because he pleaded not guilty, the whole case had to be laid out and witnesses brought. Um, and then it was only during the court, during the trial, that we learned that it was actually a, a gang crime, that he was part of a gang, the 28th gang was involved, um, you know, one of the one of the witnesses who was originally arrested with him, you know, confessed to be, uh, you know, having a member of, of of the 28 dealers who was a professed drug dealer. So all this, you know, having just was just thrown at you. We had no kind of prior preparation. Um, and then lots of things just didn't add up. And Cecil Thomas claimed that he he was a fall guy, that in fact there were four of them, and he sat in the car and never went into the house. And, um, and who knows if that's true, if he was or not. 
Um, but the fact is that I would hate to go through another trial. So I just want to say now so that I don't want this case to be opened again. <clears throat> you know, this, this for me, I don't want to go through it ever again. Um, but what got him in the end was that um, some of my father's blood was found on his sock with his own, you know, with his, with his own sort of DNA material. And the circumstance led, led, to that, led, led also to his conviction. He was seen by a neighbor yeah. earlier on asking for where my father's house was. Cecil, of course, has an explanation for all of this, which is that the people who kept him in the car came out and put, made him put their clothes on. Well, that's what his, that was his claim. But um, he couldn't explain the sock. That was the problem. But he also had another answer for that, that he was then beaten up by the police. Um, and it could have happened then. But the fact is the police also removed all his clothes when he first arrived for evidence. So yeah. that didn't wash either. Yeah. So so he's, he's sentenced to an effective, what, 25 years in prison? 30, 30 years, because he got 25 years for the murder. Yeah, and then 10 for, um, for stealing. And he's... he's and he's up. He's up for parole. He's up for parole soon. Twenty twenty-three. The the more you try to explain to yourself what happened, and you decide that you want to you want to confront him directly, or not confront, speak to him directly, you begin to have to find a way to get into a, the prison that he's being held in, um, so that you can talk to him. And there's a sort of layer after layer of either well-meaning or, or extremely experienced and um, hard people in the, in the prison service, some of them um, privately and some of them who are in the service, who you, have to, who you have to work through in order to get an interview with Cecil Thomas, the guy who's now in jail as, you know, who's, who your father's murderer. Um, what do you want to get out of him? What do you want to him to do when you see him? And what do you have to do to get that far? Um, I was kind of gripped by the need to just know what happened to my father in that last hour of his life. Um, and it was partly about he was always he would always make up a, always have a story for what happened to him, and he'd be able to recount it, make a story of it, and recount it in quite amusing. Yeah, and my yeah. dad, and quite a sort of amusing, sort of self-deprecating way. So I kept trying to fashion my own brain how he would have reacted to it, and I couldn't. And I just thought if Cecil Thomas just told me what had happened, how my father had reacted, why they did what they did, or he did why he did what he did, um, it would help me to fill in those gaps, and that would help me to kind of move on. And you know, just hearing my father's voice one last time. Um, and also I would have felt I then could kind of sort of empathize with him more and sort of feel as if I was consoling him in some way. I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but anyway, it goes through strange processes. Um, and then so I had no idea it would be so difficult to get to meet him. So I did, first of all, there's no, there's no process by which to do it. I, just, I found it. So I just went straight to the prison where I knew he was being held and asked the director whether I could meet him. He said, yes, there's a Victor Offender Dialogue System, which you will have to go through. He introduced me to someone, a, a guy called Pastor Zimri, who, who apparently is in charge of this. Pastor Zimri was, professed himself to be delighted to see me. He said, yes, we, 
Yes. You know, we're always trying to find the victims. They will never come forward. You know, we've got to trace them. And how you, you just it doesn't you know, come out up. of the story well. Yes. <laughs> and then that was it. You know, I mean, I could not get, ever get hold of him again. He just he just yeah. disappeared. Yeah. Um, and then so you, while you while you while you're trying to do this, you start thinking about restorative justice. You know, perhaps. I mean, do you begin to fantasize that you could turn this man's life around or, or you know, that a sort of confession would, um, you know, settle you and him in a way? Well, that's right. I started reading a lot about rest of justice and it just, just really appealed to me, partly because, you know, they, they talk about how alienating a court case is because basically it's between the professionals, you know, the judge, the state and the lawyers for the accused. The, yeah. the family, the victims get completely left out of this. Mm. Um, so they're just again quite powerless. So I mean, restorative justice means you know you you get you get them both together, and you yeah. just I think just and our country's um, uh, correctional services system advocates this. You know, from the TLC, from Mandela, we're all supposed to be about this. Um, so my hopes were high, but anyway, and also, so what happens is that it's supposed to help. Um, uh, offender rehabilitation because it means they gain some self-awareness. Once they hear the pain about the pain they've caused, you know, they lose some of that, I don't know, narcissistic, you know, self. So so and, and then and then that helps. And then once the victims feel they've been hurt, they're more likely to kind of accept these guys back and in, back into their communities, which is a huge problem. It, you know, it never happens. So it just seems to be a much more and, and basically the power goes back yeah. then to the victim. But you but so that just yeah. seemed very appealing to me. But there's something that happens along the way, isn't there, while you're trying to see him, because you realize, or I realized reading the book more and more, that you, what you were telling me was that you were learning that, th that whatever he was saying was what the gangs were telling him to say. So they were, they were directing the show. They, were, they knew exactly who you were, why you were there. Um, uh, they controlled F um, Fuhrberger prison, uh, Fuhrberg prison. Um, for all we know, they controlled the conversation that you were having or eventually did have. So after many years, he did walk through the door into a room where you were seated and you did have an opportunity to speak to him. Tell us about that and what that felt like and what he looked like and whether you felt afterwards that you had been talking to him and not some backroom controlled controller? Well, um, so the whole thing was, you know, because I think the prison didn't really want me there, the whole thing felt very sort of, um, you know, makeshift. There was no room available for us. The people that originally spoke to the prison weren't available. So it was a social worker and a pastor who I'd never met before um, who didn't seem to be very au fait with the case at all. Um, so the whole thing felt quite chaotic and disorganised. <clears throat> but I went there with, um, you know, well-armed with Chris Malchus, who's this guy who was um, prison warder at Polsmore for 40 years, who I then was now retired and I engaged privately to see the whole thing through for me. And he's the one who made it happen, and he was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then Alan Hirsch, yeah. my husband, also came with me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I had, I, had, I had a lot of support there. Um, but so he came and, and he looked actually very well, Cecil Thomas. He looked, um, yeah. you know, 
well fed and he said he played rugby and he was clearly you know what was he what was he dressed in i mean what was he did he have did he have hair to comb or teeth to brush what was his you know <laughs> No, I mean he looked quite well. He, um, yeah. he was dressed. He was dressed in the orange uh, uniform as mm. of the, mm. you know, of the prisoner. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to get back to the gang thing, mm. I mean the the the, the eeriest thing about him was um, when I asked him about his gang. Was he explained his whole gang affiliation? Yeah. That he was a private in the twenty eighth, and yeah. he's a Bayfi to yeah. a general. Yeah. Um, and uh, so. We asked him what 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 his uniform was, and he just he just he, he was quite harassed before then because we were going at him, you know, trying to get him to tell us what had really happened, and he just went into this kind of trance-like state where he described this imaginary uniform from the feet up, which was all white, you know, so it was white shoes, white socks, white pants, and a top with a little. This is the this would be the gang uniform that he would wear in. Yeah. You know, so that, that's heaven. part of the whole yeah. gang law. You have your uniform, which 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 fits your 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 status in prison, and you have to know it in order to be accepted. You have to be very familiar with it. Um, but to do with, I mean, and I, so was he proud of was he proud of that when he was te- when he was describing it? It seemed to kind of comfort him on some deep level. You know, maybe it um, because he had a completely absorbed this new identity. Um, and it was a sort of it's a, it's a sort of a cult he seemed to have joined. I mean, so profound, you know. That he had a new he had a new name. He had a new position. He even had a new sexual orientation because he was a Wafi. So it just seemed to be so, so profound. Wafi would have been he would have been he would have been the sexual um, object or partner or slave of one of the gang leaders in the prison. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, and did he display any discomfort about you about telling you that or? Was it just a just you know it is what it is? Yeah, no, he was. I think he was quite embarrassed by that because I think it's a position of some humiliation. Yeah, um, and but he he no, he he was open about his his gang affiliation. Um, but the thing is, what was frustrating for me was that he insisted on sticking to the story he told in court. You know, which was um, you know several years previously. Um, and I think that story was concocted for him. Um, and he said he was afraid. In the court, he said he was he'd been threatened that his his mother and children would be hurt if he you know if if, if he didn't toe the line. So um, so it was it was deeply frustrating on that level. I mean, I, I really got nowhere at all. But just meeting him, humanizing this person, helped me. And just understanding the context from which he came helped me, you know, because otherwise when something so terrible happens to something so close to you, it's almost as if it happens to you. I mean, I lost all my sense of safety, you know, it just it comes too close. Um, so I sort of, I think I'd, I'd made a big thing of it in my own consciousness, you know, this terrifying thing out there, which could strike again at any time. So just understanding the whole thing and, and, and seeing this person and understanding where he came from, or, you know, as much as, pos- as possible, just helped me, helped me, um, yeah, just humanize it, normalize it. And in the book, you, you, the conversation ends early. It ends at one o'clock because he's got to go and have lunch and dinner at the same time, um, pretty much, and will only be out of his cell again at seven o'clock the next morning. Um, there's you there's a possibility as you leave the prison that time that you'll go back, but you decide not to. 
How hard or how difficult was that decision? Well, partly, I mean, I felt that, you know, we, we sat there for, I don't know how many hours, it was three hours. Um, we weren't even offered a glass of water or, you know, it was a stuffy little room. Um, and just the encounter itself was so traumatic that, uh, you know, I really didn't want, I really didn't want to have to experience it again. But also I realized that he wasn't yeah. ever going to tell me a different story yeah. that I'd, yeah. I'd got as far as I could get. Tell us a little bit about your dad. He was an interesting man. I mean, I sort of, you, at one stage, he's, he's running, he's managing a sugar mill up northern KwaZulu, um, owned remarkably by an Indian family. Yeah, this was quite a thing in those days, you know, it was the 60s. And um, for a, so for a white man to yeah. have an Indian boss was quite unusual. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, it, it, it didn't, wasn't a thing for him at all. And he that got on extremely well with the, the family, especially the patriarch who owned yeah. the family, who owned the, yeah. the mill. Why did he leave? He left because Lonro bought it. Um, oh. I, I, I can't remember the exact story, but I think what happened was the Indian family were, not, were told they weren't allowed to own land anymore because it was part of, was part mm. of Zululand. Um, mm. So they were forced to sell. And then my dad tried frantically on their behalf to find a buyer who would keep the mill and the cane fields together because most of the surrounding mills wanted to just buy the cane fields, which means that all the mill workers would have lost their yeah. jobs. And why did he – I mean, so he – I mean, I find people who lead these lives um, absolutely incredible because I've been a wage earner all my life um, and I've always had a salary drop or contract into my bank account at the end of – a month. I've no idea what it's like to leave a job and just wander around looking for another one. Um, but you leave, you leave, or he leaves with his, with all of you, in the family valiant, um, and you drive off to a town called McGregor, in the Western Cape, not far from where I live. Um, and something else just happens. I mean, was he able to make stuff happen like that? Well. Not early on. In fact, we went from Glendale to he got a job in Peter Maritzburg um, for, oh, okay. for, for a feed mill. Um, and then he started working for Rainbow Chickens to own, to own the mill. And they sent him to Worcester to start up a new plant there. So I think while we were all still at school and university, he did the wage earning thing. But then he reached mm. a point where he couldn't stand having a boss anymore. Um, yeah. And then he went part-time and he – he came up with the idea of who owns whom because all the industries he'd worked in, one by one, from the sugar industry, were all being taken over by bigger companies. So he realized how constant, how concentrated the wealth was. So, well, this is the interesting thing. So, so you've got a real insight into how McGregor's the, the the book "Who Owns Whom" was formed. I mean, he could feel the sort of concentration happening around him. Yeah. That's right, exactly. So every industry he was in, and you know, he was very peripatetic. We you know we moved every couple of years because he'd get pissed off at the boss, or you know, you know. And he was a yeah. man kind of quite prone to you know depression. So he always did very well in his jobs, but you know, he hated working for a boss and being yeah. part of a hierarchy. So um, he, in all the industries he worked in, he realised this was happening. So it was sugar, it was apples, it was paper. It was beer initially. Um, he worked for um, uh, one of the beer companies when I was very young, wondering what it was. Anyway, so he, this, he noticed this was happening, mm. and he then went. This is all in the in the time of of, of paper registers. So he went to 
all the share registers and he sat there. They didn't want to give him this information, but he sat there in waiting rooms for hours yes. until someone gave him a copy of the share register. And then he bought shares and one share in every single company so that he, was, he used to get the annual reports. And um, the share, yeah. So then he just sat down at our dining room table, cleared it of everything, you know, all sort of eating what we normally do with the dining room table. And he just spread them all out on the dining table and then he added them all up. Yeah. And then he put this book together. And then he decided he went to, um, yeah. in fact, Jonathan Moore, my publisher, to get it published. And then he went to a couple of other publishers and they all, you know, said he'd get 10%. So he thought, I'm not having any of this. So he then published it himself. Well done, because it was a huge success. Well, exactly. It was a huge success. It became a sort of bestseller. But more than that, you know, yeah. it was obviously made a, you know, he, he became an overnight celebrity because he, he revealed for the first time just how concentrated the apartheid economy was. And I don't want to go too much into it, but you do raise his bouts of occasional depression and you do wonder whether or not or how this might manifest something in the family. Do you possibly worry about yourself or your siblings? What, was your, what, was your, what, did, what did you learn from his depressions? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, it, yeah, what did I learn? I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult to live with, but also on the other hand, there's a kind of a sensitivity and empathy which comes with depression, I think. Um, maybe not always, but certainly with him. And, you know, he could be quite volatile at times. Um, I mean, obviously, it is, it is a thing in a family. Um, and, so yeah, we, uh, um, you know, we live with it. <laughs> how's the fa- how does the family feel now? You know, the next year, potentially... Um, Cecil Thomas could, could come up for parole. Uh, the family would be consulted, would have a large say in it, as Chris Harney's family, for instance, who was murdered, have had a say in keeping his murderers in prison for many years. Will you support parole for this man, Cecil Thomas, when it comes up? Um, you know, I don't think I would because he hasn't he hasn't acknowledged remorse or he hasn't said that. He's, what he, he hasn't acknowledged what he's done. I mean, there's no sense of reform or, you know, would he, he probably just come out, you know, more harmed than ever before. Um, I don't think, but also... Um, but wouldn't he be killed if he told, if he, if he did Well, confess? that's possible. So, you know, it's such a complex thing that I can't even get my head around it. But in the end, what I think but I you would... you have to. Well, not me. I'm going to give it to the rest of my family. I'm actually going to stay mm. out of this. You know, we're a big family. Everyone's got very strong opinions on it. So I'm just going to stay out of it and let them decide and maybe even let the next generation decide, the nieces and the nephews. Um, but I, I, I'm going to stay out of it. But one also thing, Peter, I mean, I just having read yesterday in the Sunday Times um, the interview with Holomisa, Deputy Minister of Correctional Affairs, mm. when he talks about current parole hearings, you know, there's not a lot, it, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit disturbing about how random they seem to be. So I'm a bit concerned about how the processes yeah. actually work in practice as well. So he might, if you were to object or if your family were to object, he might get out anyway because somebody else more powerful has had a say. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But very lastly, there's, there's a sense in which you've written this book for South Africans like me, which I, I really enjoyed, but also for readers abroad. You explain a lot. Um, uh, about South Africa uh, to what might be a foreign audience, are you going to try and 
market the book in the UK as well, the US? Well, in fact, it is coming out in the UK because Jonathan Ball have now opened oh. an office in London, which has been headed by Jeremy, oh, Jeremy Baran, yeah, the, the publishing director. Oh, yes. No, yeah, yeah. Editor, yeah. So, and they have bought Icon Books, which is an independent publisher in, in uh, the UK. So they are very keen on setting up a publishing arm there. And it is now, so it will be published in the UK on the 5th of July. Oh, many congratulations. And, and congratulations just generally. You know, this is a very hard book to have written. It's taken you an awful long time. And as you say, you've done a thousand versions of it. Um, I've read it now twice. I've got to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that we'll be seeing each other um, uh, next week. Yeah, And, and Liz right. McGregor, thank you. Thank you very much. And and um, I can only assure listeners that Unforgiven is an absolutely unputdownable uh, book, typically well-written by a really, really great journalist and a good writer and a, and a wonderful person. And um, I, you know, I hope listeners enjoyed the discussion as much as I did, painful though the subject is. I'll be back next week with another edition of Podcasts from the Edge. Keep safe.